Welcome to In Your Area. On today's episode, we welcome Andrea Engel of Maxwell Devonshire Realty in Sherwood Park and Robert Hainsworth of Negro Minucci Law. The duo chat about the prevalence of backup offers in this current market and their three Ps, pitfalls, pros, and practices. They dig into how you can create a strong backup offer, reviewing important terms and conditions, and exploring when best to time a deposit in these types of situations. They answer common questions, like what happens if the backup offer is a stronger offer than the original, what to do when a backup offer has been received and the buyer's agent is not handling it as they should, and how best to negotiate in these types of situations. We hope you enjoy. Hi, everybody. I'm Andrea Engel, and I'm a real estate associate from the offices of Maxwell Devonshire Realty, which is based out of Sherwood Park. And I'm into my second decade of selling residential real estate. Uh, Joining me for the conversation is Robert Hainsworth, and he is from the legal offices of Nigro Minucci, located in Sherwood Park. And Robert is a lawyer who has been uh, practicing primarily in real estate law for coming on four years and uh, does up to a couple of hundred deals a month uh, representing clients. So Robert, thanks so much for joining uh, this conversation. And this is a subject matter today about the best practices. Well, what I want to call the triple P's of backup offers. So the pros, the pitfalls and the practices, the best practices. So thanks for making the time. Yeah. Thanks, Andrea. I really, uh, appreciate uh, this opportunity and to be working with you on this. I find it to be quite an interesting uh, bit of law, and it can also be a a dangerous spot for buyers and for sellers. So it's very important that uh, the lawyers are involved in these types of situations. Yeah, I'm really happy to have this discussion uh, underway with you, Robert, because you're right, it can be like walking a minefield Um, you know, for these backup offer scenarios, and especially in the kind of market that much of Alberta finds itself in right now, and that is uh, a market that favors the seller. So in in many of the areas all over the province, it's a hot seller's market right now. So we will jump into this by saying, what is the best way to handle that this is a backup uh, offer on the contract? Is it different when you're the agent representing a buyer and writing the offer, how should we be constructing this as real estate practitioners? Should we indicate this as a condition or should we indicate this as a term for a backup offer? Yes. So first off, I would tell my realtors and we have to always think we have different interests that are going to be at play here. We have a buyer, we have a seller, we have a seller's realtor and we have a buyer's realtor. All of those people have distinct positions and distinct roles that they can play within this circumstance. And I would first off saying to realtors, both on the buyers and the seller side, don't hesitate to put in a backup offer. If your clients are uh, desirous of obtaining this property and backup offer is the only option, don't be afraid. There are plenty of ways that we can craft a contract and work a deal to make sure that everyone's going to be protected and that it will lead to a success, success in the end for at least someone. When I'm speaking with realtors and speaking with buyers and sellers, it's important for the offer and the backup offer to contain a conditional clause. When we have conditional clauses, it means that if X, then Y. And 
not what and if not x then not y right and so it's a, a basic set of logic in our case if the first offer falls through then the backup offer is going to be the primary offer and so normally i would say it's conditional and we want it to be conditional because it's already set up for uh, success and failure there's not going to be any further negotiations when a, an event occurs so that we know how we're going to be governing whether it's the deposit or governing the termination of the contract so i would say to buyers and sellers that it's important to keep those backup offers as conditional upon the failure of the first offer okay so in your opinion it is not the best practice to construct this offer as a backup containing some kind of a term that you know should the first offer fail um, this one leaps ahead and becomes the first position the term is just not satisfactory and why would that be robert and so i wouldn't go all the way to say that it's never going to be a, a possible scenario for me it's just a little bit more difficult to draft the terms with the specificity and with the the triggering mechanisms properly put into them so that we know and we have a path forward with respect to the second offer so it's not hard and fast to say it's never can be a term but i prefer the conditional clause because we already have some of that information packed into it okay so the triggering mechanism many times you know uh, i know that when i'm handling this for a client i'm going to insert a term into the backup offer that is is along the lines of of language like um you know there's going to be a seller's term or pardon me a seller's condition that's attached here and the wording in that seller's condition is going to be that you know once the seller is released from all obligations under contract xyz now this becomes the primary first position offer so is that information that we as as real estate practitioners are allowed to be asking for and seeking which is referencing it and tying it into what's what's the actual name of the first contract that's pending is this perhaps considered private information between the seller and their first buyer yeah and i think that this is where things start to get interesting right off the bat uh, because when we have contractual obligations third parties are usually not privy to any of the information within a deal who is mm -hmm. between two other people in right. this case to be able to successfully have a backup offer we are going to need some of that limited information so when a realtor is speaking with their client the seller i think that they should have that conversation with the seller to say that normally your information is going to be private. However, if you would like to um, at least entertain a backup offer situation, you're going to have to be prepared to share some information. And this some information is going to be at least the uh, relevant dates, the closing date, uh, perhaps some condition dates, but uh, anything that is going to uh, impact the writing of that second offer. So, and then as a buyer's uh, agent, it's very important to uh, push for some of that information because when you're drafting a backup offer, you want to make sure that that backup offer is going to be there for your client when they need it. 
And if we have terms in that backup offer that don't provide us with some dates and some information, then you might as well not provide the backup offer because you won't have that the, the contractual backing to be able to take it forward anyways or any of the contractual backing to, to prosecute a claim if a claim arises out of the situation. Let's, let's say that um, there's a seller who has an accepted backup offer in place, but you know their first buyers have come back to them. Maybe they need to get an extension on their financing. Let's say there is an accepted backup offer in place, but those first buyers are asking for that extension. What can a seller do in that position? They've they've got you know they've got this other one uh, lurking in the background, so to speak. Yeah, and I I think this is also kind of uh, contractually interesting. So there is a line in there somewhere with respect to what kinds of changes in the primary offer are going to be acceptable and what kind of changes in the primary offer are actually going to uh, result in that offer uh, being terminated or at least uh, changed to the point that the backup offer comes into existence. And so this line is going to have to be walked relatively carefully. And what I like to talk about when we're thinking about where that line is, we want to think about material impacts on the contract. So if the seller is going to materially change the first contract, then that's going to be a situation where that one is going to then uh, be void and the backup offer can take place. If the changes to that contract are non-material or if they're trite in nature, then the the first offer can survive those kinds of changes. And it is difficult to determine what is and what is not. However, terms like uh, extending the financing uh, condition date, those are usually non-material. Uh, because they're not going to impact the final completion of the contract on the basic fundamental terms of that first offer. However, changing the purchase price without a justification or extending the closing date beyond what is reasonable, those could be material changes to the contract and therefore void that first offer. So it is important for uh, agents and for sellers to make sure that they're having conversations with their lawyers if they're going to be entertaining amendments to a first offer, if there is a backup offer in place. Wow, that really cements things <laughs> with uh, you know the solidity of the first offer then is what it's sounding like. Yeah, I think that the first offer is going to be that uh, the standard for any potential deals that are coming up, right? So it's the standard for the first deal and it is really the standard that the second deal is going to be measured against if we're ever in a position where we are switching from the first offer to the second offer. Now, okay, that um, perhaps leads nicely into talking about um, what if the backup offer, you know, that uh, that a seller receives is superior in, in one aspect or many aspects. Can the seller do anything to sort of extricate themselves from that first pending offer or can they hinder those those first buyers during the process in some way 
Yeah, so this one is potentially a risky situation for a seller because they have legitimate contractual obligations to that first buyer. And those obligations can't be changed without a real reason. And so to get out of that contract, there is going to need to be a legal mechanism that's going to allow them to do so. And so perhaps a seller's condition in these circumstances might be helpful. So a condition that uh, there's a lawyer review in the contract itself, or a condition that other offers are going to be at least entertained until a certain date. And those things can allow the the seller to have an option to uh, revoke that contract in a legally justified way. The second part of that with respect to hampering a purchaser in the contractual uh, relationship can be problematic. And so if that seller is not allowing access to a home inspector or that seller is refusing to uh, sign legal documents, including the transfer, then those are actions that are frustrating this contract and going to have a negative effect on the potential buyers. So in those cases, sellers can be, can be uh, taking on liability through their actions with the eventual goal of frustrating the first offer. So it can be dangerous circumstances. Yes, that, that does sound like uh, walking that minefield again a little bit. What about, um, what about the reverse situation uh, to that, Robert, which would be, let's say that, that the, there are backup buyers in place. So, you know, they, they have got a successful backup offer pending on the subject property, but, you know, they want to keep on looking at houses and they're just not sure. And, and perhaps the, the buyer's mindset is, well, you know, I am a backup buyer, but how solid is this? I can just skid my backup deal, can't I? And they've, you know, they, they're asking their, their representative, their real estate agent to keep on looking at houses that are fully available while they're in a backup position with the intention of trying to extricate themselves from it. What, what can you speak to about that kind of a scenario? Yeah, and I think this is a different scenario because buyers, they need a house, right? And I think that their eventual goal is to find themselves living in a new house. And to be in a position where you are in uh, perhaps the best term is uh, offer purgatory, where you don't know if your backup offer is going to be accepted. Meanwhile, you're taking yourself out of the real estate market is not really a tenable position for that secondary buyer. So in the cases of a backup offer, I would advise my clients not to re- not to remove all conditions of their backup offer until mm-hmm. such a time as they're in a position to actually complete. And that would mean that the first offer has fallen apart. So whether it's a home inspection, whether it's a lawyer review, whether it's a financing condition, whether it's a sale of home condition, I would leave those unwaived or unsatisfied until such a time as they know they're going to be moving forward on that on that first backup offer. So what this will allow them to do is have the ability to get out of their first contract if they have a second contract that they're looking to get into and and move forward with towards closing. And so Robert, how how easy or hard 
can this be for the buyer? Let's say if they've got those unsatisfied conditions attached to their backup offer, and it's it's as simple as simply sending the non-waiver over saying, yeah, you know, I wish to extricate myself from this because they found something better in the background, you know, the next house to be able to offer on. Can they, you know, do they have the leg to stand on to just send that non-waiver saying, well, I tried to fulfill my obligations of financing and or inspection and couldn't? Is it just that simple to do? Yeah, it, it basically is. Uh, and so especially when we're talking about deposits in play as well, which mm-hmm. is an important factor because deposits, they show that a buyer is, is eager. They show that a buyer is serious and that the buyer is committed to completing whatever transaction it is. And so when we have a non-waiver of conditions, that deposit is then going to be provided to the buyer, uh, to the potential buyer. And we would want that in a secondary scenario as well, because that buyer is going to perhaps need that deposit uh, for their next house. So it is basically as simple as as not not removing or waiving their conditions. I like the lawyer review condition because then that gives the, the buyer the option to seek that legal advice with respect to where they're at and then decide not to remove that condition. Could you maybe flesh that out a little bit for us, please, Robert, what a lawyer review condition might be uh, drafted with what kind of language? Yeah, so I like to keep it simple. Uh, and simple provides flexibility with respect to the buyer's position. So if there's a subject clause in the buyer's secondary offer, that this offer is subject to uh, lawyer's review of the contractual terms, lawyer's review of the title and encumbrances, or just plain old lawyer review, then this will allow that uh, buyer to be able to have a conversation with their lawyer about these particular issues, whether it's oh my gosh, I have the second house that I'd like to purchase, or Mm -hmm. I don't think that the seller is going to uh, complete my deal because they're moving very quickly with the first offer. And then the lawyer can say, I don't recommend that you remove this condition. And then they have that justified uh, reason for non-waiver of that condition. So it can be as simple as this offer is subject to lawyer review. And dated the same as the other conditions that the buyer has put into that contract, for instance, finance and inspection, same date? It can be the same day or it can be a little bit later, right? And we want to make sure that uh, uh, some of the items that take a longer amount of time have that time for them to be able to, to live up to those conditions. Financing, especially now with a busy real estate market, uh, mortgage brokers and banks can be a little bit inundated with applications. So we want to make sure that that financing condition is going to provide sufficient time for whatever task it is. The lawyer review condition is the same. We want to be able to make sure that it's going to be able to fit into uh, that buyer's lawyer's schedule or uh, provide that uh, lawyer with sufficient time to do the due diligence that they're going to require to be able to properly advise that buyer. So this condition could be after some of the other conditions. Uh, however, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to be. Okay, well, let's um, try and flesh out something that you touched on there, you know, in that last bit of the conversation, Robert, and it centers around deposits. When should the deposit 
in a backup offer, when should that be time to come in? Before the backup offer becomes the first position or once the first offer falls apart and the backup offer is now in the first position? Yeah, so I think this is also a very interesting question and it will come down to uh, the buyer's desire for the backup offer to be solid or to be as strong as it possibly can. To be taken seriously with with the weight of the deposit behind it, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so you and I both know that we often see uh, $1,000 deposits, uh, but we also see $25,000 deposits. And there certainly is a a difference in perception with respect to the $25,000 offer versus the $1,000 offer, right? And if someone is willing to cut a check for $25,000, they seem to be a little bit more serious uh, than the person who's willing to cut the check for a thousand, and that's because there is some risk with respect to giving money to another party, right? Especially when you have a contractual obligation. So that's going to be an important factor. If we have a one thousand dollar deposit, then there's less risk on the buyer because they're only going to be potentially losing a thousand dollars. So in those cases, the deposit could be put up a little bit earlier uh, to show that they're serious, but that they do want to make sure that they have reduced risk. If the buyer is contemplating putting up a sizable deposit, I would encourage that buyer to craft their deposit schedule and their deposit clauses to provide an initial deposit and then a subsequent additional deposit at a a later date. And I would time that later date uh, to be after Uh, the conditions are going to either rise or fall on the primary offer so that the buyer is holding on to their own money for as long as possible in that circumstance. Because again, what we spoke about before, they may need it for another purchase if they're, if they're still looking for other options. There was a a situation in a realtor uh, discussion group that I'm a part of that um, I was reading a while ago, just a few weeks ago. And this was the scenario. There was a backup offer. The buyers had written an unconditional backup offer that had received acceptance. So it was pending and a quite sizable deposit had gone over. So it was, you know, the first deal, the first offer was still live and there was still time left for those buyers to be able to fulfill those conditions. It was still pending to the first buyers. The backup buyers wanted to get out of this unconditional purchase contract that they'd written as a backup, and they were seeking the return of that deposit. At issue here was, were they entitled to get the deposit back, number one, and number two, could they extricate themselves and really collapse this unconditional offer they've written? What would your interpretation of that scenario look like? So this would be, I suppose, a scenario that I would encourage my second buyers not to get into uh, in the very first place. In the first place, right. Because there is risk inherently built into a situation like that. So yes, they have put a very strong offer on the table, It's so strong, in fact, that it becomes legally binding at the beginning of its existence. So without conditions, that's a contractual obligation that must be fulfilled, barring any breaches of that contract and of that contract term 
that uh, come up during that process, which is a far higher bar than a condition, non-waiver of condition. And so in that case, I think some very careful negotiation would be the best course of action if I was advising that second buyer uh, mm -hmm. to try to instruct the agent to allow termination of that second offer. Uh, that would reduce their legal risk uh, significantly if they could obtain a termination um, mutually and that the, the deposit is then released to that secondary buyer. The seller does still hold all the cards in this case because they have an unconditional backup offer that they also have contractual value in. Um, that's going to be their safety net if the first position uh, fails to complete. So they may be reluctant to uh, negotiate down that road because they still want to have the value which is there in that secondary offer. So I think that the secondary offer, they have significant risk with respect to their deposit. Uh, especially given the fact that they are wishing to not complete the transaction that they have already contractually obliged themselves to complete. Let's stay with that scenario for a minute. What if their offer as a backup uh, had been unconditional, yet there had been um, the insertion of a term, something along the lines of, you know, they were, they had the, they had, they reserved the right, let's say, to withdraw their unconditional offer at any time? Or could there have been something inserted into um, that kind of an unconditional offer that would have given them the leeway to, you know, have an escape clause, essentially? So in a basic sense, yes. Uh, and I would advise if we're, if I was able to advise them prior to them actually putting the deposit and actually putting forth the backup offer, I would advise them to include a clause uh, such as that. Um, and it can be even as simple as uh, you described that the secondary buyer reserves the right to withdraw this offer without penalty, without set off, and have the deposit returned to them in whole at any time uh, at the secondary buyer's sole discretion. So if there was a clause in there with, with terms that were basically like that, then they would have that uh, exit clause. And I think that the, the brokerages or the lawyers or whoever is holding uh, the deposit would be obliged to uh, provide that back to them. Okay, and, and would you say that that, Robert, is maybe a, a best you know, kind of practice, a good rule of thumb term to be inserting into anybody's backup offer, that, that the term is in there to be able to withdraw that offer before it becomes the active one at any time via written notice? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And if there can be clauses that are general, can be drafted in such a general way that can be applicable to multiple deals. And so that the agent can have this clause and they can be able to insert it whenever they have a secondary offer position, uh, because this just allows their client that flexibility to be able to get out of the deal. The risk is that that clause is so strong and it does allow that secondary buyer to back out at mm -hmm. such an ease, in such an easy way that that backup offer doesn't have as much value to the seller. And the seller may say, I don't need your backup offer because you can back out of it at any time. So mm -hmm. there is a little bit of a balance with respect to the seriousness of the backup offer and the risk protection on that secondary buyer. 
Now, what about for sellers in general, Robert? What should they be considering when they're entertaining a backup offer to accept? Are there any potential um, disadvantages or risks to a seller even entertaining taking a backup offer in the first place? I think there are some risks, and uh, the risks are certainly that one of their actions can create a scenario where that secondary offer has a cause of action against them and then would uh, bring a lawsuit. And we can imagine a situation that justifies this if the property market is so hot that every subsequent offer, the price is going up. And if a couple of months go by and there is $50,000 in additional equity that's sort of at play, or even a hundred or 200, if we're talking about some of the more overheated markets in Canada, then there can be motivation for that secondary offer to actually take their cause of action and turn it into a lawsuit. So there is some risk on the seller based on their actions. And so some of the uh, important red flags that I would uh, mention to a seller is if the deal is the primary deal is non arm's length, right? And so if we're going to be selling to children or selling to uh, brothers and sisters or parents or grandparents or grandchildren, those types of deals can be perceived as inherently unfair even if the terms are completely justified in the market and completely legally justified. So if we're in a situation where the primary offer is non-arm's length, that should be a red flag to proceed a little bit more carefully with that secondary offer. Another one is, of course, to bear in mind housing prices. And so if we're in one of those markets where every subsequent offer, the price seems to be going up and up and up, if the seller takes on a secondary offer, then they're going to be obliged to close on that uh, offered price. However, if they were to reject a secondary offer, the first offer falls through, and then they're in a position to relist at at a much higher amount, then they don't want to be taking on that secondary offer in the first place because they can ride the real estate market in a little bit more of a favorable term. And so you and I, and not very many people are able to advise on how the real estate market is going to be in the next month or going to be in the next day or in the next year, because it's very difficult for anyone to be able to forecast that. However, sometimes sellers have an understanding or a perception of how the real estate market is going. So that could be a factor that plays into their calculus. Another important factor is going to be due diligence. And so due diligence is going to be performed by a potential buyer in that first position. And so that due diligence often includes a home inspection. And that home inspection may reveal issues that the seller is then forced to disclose to that secondary uh, position. So in those cases, the due diligence can then alter the representations and warranties, or at least put obligations on the seller to disclose some things that may be found in that first offer's due diligence with respect to the home inspection. So that's another careful uh, bit, and it can be quite interesting when we're talking about double offers. And then lastly, flexibility for the seller uh, can be important in certain circumstances, right? And so flexibility with respect to them moving across the country or flexibility with respect to them uh, completing another purchase, 
or flexibility with respect to uh, where they see themselves and how they're going to be using their funds, right? And so if the seller requires maximum flexibility for any of those uh, particular issues, then having that secondary offer may actually string them or oblige them to something that is going to be inconsistent with some of their other needs with respect to uh, the funds or the timing. So they do have some risk with respect to all of those outside factors if they're already going to be lining themselves up with a secondary offer. Sure, that makes sense. Yes, that tying yourself to further obligations can hamstring your own flexibility. Yeah. Definitely. And um, if we could just maybe flesh out, Robert, one of those points you brought up there, um, just a little bit for, for members who are listening, and that is the disclosure about defects on the previous home inspection. You know, are the sellers obliged to bring that to light for the secondary or the backup buyers just as a routine matter, of course, or only if they are specifically asked about why the first offer failed? And I, uh, so I field a lot of questions about uh, material latent and patent defects. And so mm-hmm. this does come up in uh, transactions. I wouldn't say frequently, but it, it is not, uh, not an uncommon question for me to be fielding. And what, when we speak about obligations on a seller with respect to defects, their obligation is to disclose known defects. And if those defects become known, through the due diligence of the first position offer, then it's my opinion that those new bits of information that the seller now has ought to be disclosed to the secondary offer. And they ought to be disclosed to the secondary offer with sufficient time that that secondary offer may actually consider whatever those things are. And so if we are walking into a home and the front door is half out of the door jam, and it can barely be closed. Both of the buyers on the first offer and the second offer are going to be obviously alerted with respect to that door. Uh, however, uh, so then the, uh, the seller's obligation to disclose that the door doesn't work, that's going to be a patent defect that can be discovered on a normal due diligence. However, if there is a latent defect discovered on the first home inspection and the seller is then alerted to the existence of that latent defect, it's my opinion that that should be disclosed. So it is a careful line in there with respect to disclosure. And that may be a conversation that the seller wants to have with their lawyer prior to uh, making that disclosure. Let's talk about the best way to, um, to construct the backup offer, if we can revisit that for a little bit, would you say that um, let's let's say you're you're the seller's agent, but you've received an offer from a, a fellow associate, a fellow colleague, and you don't think it's dra- it's been drafted or constructed quite the right way for the protection of of your own client or for both parties? Um, and I think Robert, you've already stated your preference that um, you know the backup offer be handled with the insertion of a condition over a term. But would there ever be a time where the condition versus the term for the trigger of the backup coming into first position, could it ever be seen as a point of negotiation in a process? 
I think that it could be, uh, especially from the seller's perspective, right? So if the seller wants to make sure that they're going to be selling this property by XYZ date and they don't care who they're going to be selling it to, then having a strong secondary offer is advantageous to the seller. If the buyer is merely flirting with the idea of purchasing this home, but they want to make sure that they have their options open, then that's going to be on the buyer's side, a reason to have a less serious secondary offer. So I think that it could certainly be a point of negotiation uh, because we're talking about the strength of potential contractual obligations and differing interests with respect to uh, the seller and with respect to the secondary buyer. So I think that it's perfectly reasonable for some negotiation to happen. It's also advantageous for all the parties to be clear with respect to what their obligations are uh, so that everyone is on the same page moving forward. If the seller's agent or even the buyer's agent have drafted a contract and there are some deficiencies in that contract that provide risk to their client, then my preference for those types of scenarios is to have an addendum. We don't necessarily want to go over the work that has already been done because there may be a contract that a lot of the terms have already been negotiated and agreed on. Purchase price, closing date, condition date, types of conditions, uh, terms with respect to fitness of the property or uh, work that needs to be done, those sorts of things. We don't necessarily need to rehash any of those. But if the seller's agent sees a secondary offer that is going to uh, cause their client problems, then an addendum attached onto that, perhaps adding in the secondary offer conditions that we already spoke about, would be advantageous uh, to them. Well, in closing, Robert, I think it sounds like, uh, you know, the the simple backup offer, like we sometimes might want to treat it in our course of practice, it's really not as straightforward and as simple as as it uh, it might seem on surface. But um, you know, terms and conditions, timing of deposits, all of that um, has to play into it. And I think, really, you know, to to summarize, checking with legal counsel is is always a good idea for either side. I, I agree. It can be when we're having competing contractual obligations, that's always a time that you want to bring in uh, your lawyer uh, early, at least for a telephone call or a, a brief discussion uh, with the clients to make sure that there aren't any obligations that are going to uh, be in conflict with one another and create any potential risk. That's great advice for our clients. Uh, like you say, when there's competing contractual interests, Robert. So thank you so much for all of your insight. And uh, you've given a lot of context concerning backup offers and a lot of clarity uh, for our members in their daily practice. Thanks again, Robert. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, I always like to assist uh, realtors in getting the deals done, uh, because that's what uh, uh, keeps our market robust. Yes, it's uh, great refreshers and great reminders for best practice. Thanks again, Robert. Thank you to Andrea and Robert, and we look forward to seeing you the next time we are in your area.